Welcome to episode number six of Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill, talking to one of my favorite people that I am so honored to finally (laughs) kind of uh, arrest or hold her still long enough to talk with her. Mm -hmm. I'm in the presence of Dr. Cheryl Jennifer LaRoche. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you don't know how much I brag about your wonderful book (laughs) and that I am just uh, a colleague of yours. So to have you sitting in our house for this podcast, we are over the moon. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so with all all that mutual admiration, uh, (laughs) society nonsense, let's get down to the real topic at hand. Uh, Who are you and what are we talking about today? Well, I studied the Underground Railroad. I've been across the country. I started by looking at sites in first Syracuse, New York, of all places, when I worked as a conservator and cut these faces out of the basement of a church, a Wesleyan Methodist church that was being converted from a church to a restaurant. Who knew? Yes. Unbelievable. So that was my friend. So we had to consolidate these faces to get them out of the wall. It's a long story, which I don't want to go into now. But that started me on a journey of thinking about the Underground Railroad because I'm in Syracuse and then began to realize that, oh, this this isn't a topic that spans the country. From there, I was sent, when I was working on my dissertation by my advisor, to Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio to look at underground railroad sites that the people in the National Forest Service were looking at, and I began to come. They needed a seasoned veteran, as they put it. Just just, just go with that, you know, euphemistically speaking. No words. And um, somebody who could really collect all of this data across multiple states and multiple circumstances. As I did this work, everywhere I went, One name kept stalking me. When I was in Rocky Fork, they said, oh, our church was started by this pastor, William Paul Quinn. When I got to Indiana, Quinn's name was on the deed for the church in Indiana. When I got back to Maryland to talk to my dissertation advisor, Paul Shackle, who lived in Frederick, I said, Paul, there's this guy, because that's what I was calling <laughs> right, it. This, guy, this right. guy who turns up everywhere. His name is Quinn. A prominent bishop called this guy. Yes, this guy. You know, Forgive me, but that's where I was at that point. And Paul Shackle takes me around the corner to Quinn Chapel in Frederick, Maryland. Which I've been to. Exactly. Yes. 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 So at that point, I'm realizing that here's a man that we don't know about that has this, this huge influence across multiple states. And I began, A, writing about the Underground Railroad in those sites for which I had been tasked with doing the work, but I also came back with a second agenda to write a biography of William Paul Quinn. So is that where we are in 2017 in the midst of working on this biography and So in 2017, I finished the book, Free Black Communities and the Underground Railroad, The Geography of Resistance. I finished that book published by the University of Illinois Press in 2014. And in the book, I have a picture of Paul Quinn. I talk about Quinn. I, he's, he occupies a few pages in the book. But the larger story has taken me now another 10 years of looking at Quinn and really thinking about this man and what is it and what is his meaning and where is he born. And so he has been the focus of my Underground Railroad research over the last several years. And you're opening up new ground because when we traditionally think of the Underground Railroad, we're not really delving deeper enough into the AME Church history and especially dealing with someone 
by the name of Paul Quinn. Yes. His name wouldn't even be one of the first people that would roll off of my tongue as being involved in this movement. But here you are, Mm -hmm. once again, on some groundbreaking research. Mm -hmm. I just pray that it doesn't take you 10 more years (laughs) to get this one done. Because the world needs more of your work in other areas. There's a lot on my plate, a lot I'm interested in. And one of the things about Quinn when you are establishing new underground railroad sites, because people think it's somehow some, a finite number, right. when you're establishing <laughs> new underground railroad sites and new operatives, there's no historical legacy for that. And so people are skeptical. Well, if they were really operating, we would have heard about them. Already. Well, now, I love, for you, I love that you're saying that because I call it a historical blueprint. Yes. There's often no historical blueprint for some of the work that we're doing. And so you're just supporting that by saying you run into this uh, issue all the time as well. Absolutely. And when you're doing that and people want you to validate what you're yes, saying, yes. I am shameless. I will take oral history, oral history as one of my foundations. And so I often begin with the oral narrative. And as a historical sort of triangulation... I'll start with the oral. You and I have been talking all morning about the material culture and how to use that. So I have the material record. Yes. I have the documentary record, and I'm an archaeologist. So I have the archaeological record. And I would use any other record that I could get my hands on because that's what it takes to give this full panoramic interpretation of the history that we see, particularly the Underground Railroad, where so much of the information is missing. So you see people who say, oh, well, they didn't keep any records. Well, I've been talking about Paul Quinn in Indiana, who lives um, just a few miles from Levi Coffin. The Levi Coffin. The Levi Coffin. talks about. The <laughs> Levi Coffin. They're, they're within eight, five to eight miles of each other for multiple years. That is phenomenal. But then when I went to speak, I spoke for one of the Ohio Valley Underground Railroad Conference And not only had they not put that together, but as I began to speak to the experts in the room, because I come in from outside, I have this sort of larger interpretive (laughs) lens that I'm using. Right. Someone takes me inside and says, well, you know that um, Fountain City, where Levi Coffin is, has a black community of like 200 black people. And I am now listening, and I am a little bit amazed that we haven't put these things together. Were you so excited that you wanted to leave the conference to go yes. to that black community yes. to see what you could uncover? Yes. Okay. You know, you know. I, I knew that, right? Yes. I just wanted to jump up and leave right in the middle. Like, all right, go. let's, go on, go. let's go on a field trip, yeah. everybody, okay. because, you know, you have to walk the land. Right, you do, all the time. You have to walk the land yes. And, yes. and look at the maps and understand all of these things. And I'm sure that the next time I hear from my wonderful colleagues in Indiana, you know, they treat me like I'm a rock star when I come out there. But you are. That's why I look at all, look at all the the hype I gave at the beginning of this. <laughs> they're so they're so um, kind to me, right? Because we're we're breaking new ground. And when I was in Richmond, and I started to look at the terrain of Richmond and the canal and the crossroads, which is of course Paul Quinn's home. So I am in Indiana, in Richmond, because, partly because of Paul Quinn, but also because my son-in-law is the new president of Earlham College, where Paul Quinn is buried. So Congratulations! Quinn, so you just answered my next question, which was, where is he? Uh, his final resting place. He's in. Earlham College, he's buried with the Quakers. 
And your son-in-law is the new yeah, president? Is the new president. And so, you know, this is Quinn. If he would just give up the rest of his secrets, I would be really happy. So this is the kind of research that one should be undertaking in the 21st century around the Underground Railroad. We're finding names that were not directly associated. I've been working with a colored convention uh, folks because we know that many of the people who are leading the colored convention movement show up in the Underground Railroad record. Yes. But no one... Had, you can't make those associations unless you're widely knowledgeable across multiple facets of black history. Now I need you to say that again because that is critical. I need everyone to listen carefully to this. Say that again, you please. You need to be widely knowledgeable around multiple facets of black history. So when I see a name that doesn't connect in some other literature... I know that I'm looking at someone that connects across counties, countries, uh, states and disciplines to realize that this is the same person and that there are, not only are you a minister in a church, not only are you leading your AME church itself, but you're leading the Masonic temple and the yes, lodge, yes. the Knights of Pythias, right. that you are across these various organizations and you're inside of the black convention movement, the colored conventions. We isolate the way we study history. We isolate the way we look at material culture. We isolate the way we do archaeology. And that isolation, for us as black people, where our historic record is already diminished, it is, yes. it's another diminishing factor. And so what you miss in the archaeological record, you might pick up in the artifactual record. You're taking us to church. You're taking us to school. You're taking <laughs> us on a tour. These words I've prayed over, I, I talk about all the time, and you just can let them roll off of your tongue because you live this, you breathe this, and you believe this. Yes. And this Paul Quinn project allows you to validate this yes. in a whole nother realm. Yes. Yes. Now, and, I, wait a minute, I got to tell you, yes. I've been excited about various AME bishops in yes. the past. Yes, yes. Tied into material in our archives, but I got to just reiterate this, Paul Quinn wasn't even on the radar. Yes. When I first think of Paul Quinn, I think of the uh, old HBCU. Yes. Okay. Other than that, yes. uh, but but now I'm going to be on the lookout for new research historical nuggets that I can share with you yes. that might help you in your project with regard to uncovering the true legacy of Bishop Paul Quinn. Well, you know, Sterling Stuckey says we need an army of eyes. Yes. And certainly I have elicited people across the country because Quinn has been elusive. He was elusive in his own time. If you look in the Christian recorder, when they're trying to get the bishops to give up the information around their lives, Quinn is like, I don't have time. You know, I'm out in the West. I'm doing these things. I'm building these churches. You know, he's responsible for just, he is the linchpin for the AME church, but you don't know about him in part because he was really old school. He was a pioneer. He was a fighter. And they liked Daniel Payne. He was more refined. He was educated. He was bringing the church into the modern era. But Quinn is the linchpin from the founding, Allen and Morris Brown, into the modern era for Payne. And he is the person that grows the church. By the time you get to Turner, Henry McNeil Turner. Which I'm in love with. The, too. I mean, the, who isn't in love with that bad but man? The, yeah, well, you know, if you just quote Turner and right. Frederick Douglass in your whole life, right. you're, 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 you're good. good. Right. You're good. Right. You know, right. a little bit of Mary McLeod Bethune's right. kind of last will and testament. You're, you're kind of good. Or Ida B. Well, got to throw Ida up in there. Yeah, throw Ida in there. But he doesn't leave a lot of written records. He doesn't write his own biography. There's no narrative. 
there's very little of his own voice. And because, of, and the one thing we do have, he appropriates David Walker's appeal. So there's um, several pages of his writing, and when you pick it up, you realize, oh, wait, he's inserted an aspect of David Walker's appeal. But the beginning of that writing piece, which is in uh, Dorothy Sterling's um, Speak Out in Thunderous Tones, it's in the back of that. Okay. So really, he's a fascinating man who has been very difficult to research, but in doing the research, you really do learn how to do Underground Railroad research. In a way that it hasn't been publicized before. Yes. So yet again, you are pioneering because from our lens, we love Harry Tubman, Yes. but I'm a little tired of her being the go-to, the, the major focus of how you define activity on the Underground Railroad. Well, let me say this about Tubman, because I do a lot of work with Tubman, and she is one of my main spirit guides, I'd have to call her. Okay. We, again, have rehashed information. Tubman's in Baltimore. We don't know a lot about what she's doing in Baltimore, but Tubman is in Baltimore. We know that Tubman's I'm getting the, working with the Library of Congress to map the Cumbie River Raid. We don't understand the Cumbie River Raid as well as we should, so that even someone as prominent as Harriet Tubman, there is still deeper research to go. And when we analyze the Underground Railroad, it's almost it is almost always from the male perspective. Yes. So we talk we almost never talk about these women who escape, yet the leading figure on the Underground Railroad is a woman. So we right. have this dichotomy between we never talk about the women, we talk about the men, though not very many women could escape. My next book will be about women and in, in escaping from slavery. So that means you are gonna finish Quinn before the next ten years. God willing. Okay, God willing. Okay, God willing and the creek don't rise. God okay. willing. Now, but, but let's back up to something you said. With regard to underground research, we spent our most recent years in trying to uncover new material culture yes. that lends itself to a different understanding of the Underground Railroad. Yes. Uh, so in some ways, it's supportive of what you've been working on, and we didn't even know that that's what you were doing. Yes. So one of the things I talk about in the book is this reliance on old information. And in the, it's the, the early part in the introduction, I speak about the fact that the 19th century, in through Harriet Tubman, William Still, in through Wilbur Siebert, all of those people are the founders for our scholarship. What about Edward Pettit in the sketches Pettit, of Edward Well, you know, they, that's always been a little... I'd have to go back and look at that and vet that myself. Okay, what about Smedley's book? Smedley as well. Yeah, Smedley. Yeah. So some of these things, you, I, all of them I use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All of them I rely upon. I like to find corroborating information. Sure. <laughs> I do not rule anything out. Right, okay. You know, I do not dismiss anything out of hand. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. all of those, um, William Mitchell... All of those books that you're referring to, I use. And when they speak about the black community, because sometimes they're, they're not central except for Still, and even in Still, he doesn't talk about the black community. So if they are identifying locations, I'm particularly interested. Smedley talks about a particular place where people cross, I think, um, coming out of Virginia. I'm not, I can't remember exactly where mm -hmm, he's talking mm -hmm. about it. I'm very mindful of that. But the 20th century... That was the nadir for the Underground Railroad until Charles Bloxon starts to talk about that article. And there's, there's Larry Garrett, of course. But the Underground Railroad research in the 20th century until Franklin and Schwerniger do Runaway Slaves is pretty barren. Yes. 
And now in the 21st century, we've picked it up again. And we're, we're picking it up in a way that is being two things. If we don't do some of these things now, we're going to lose evidence of these black communities and we're going to lose the memory yes. of the black communities. Yes. Once you lose the memory and the evidence, you're pretty much doomed. Indeed. So we are in the process of locating these black communities, which are absolutely crucial to the Underground Railroad. And in the book, I map them out in Indiana because Indiana was the easiest state to replicate. So when you say you map them out, can't your formula be replicated in other parts of the country? It has been. You know, so, thank you for that question. Sure. <laughs> oh, you teed that shot up nicely. <laughs> I'm so excited because some archaeologists in Massachusetts used Massachusetts as the border because there is a point where the rest of the country is in slavery and Massachusetts is a free state. And so it's the border between slavery and freedom. And they use my methodology, um, Whitney Battle and Robert Painter, use my methodology to talk about Massachusetts. Have, have exactly you coined a, a, a name or a trademark? Your... Geography of Resistance. That's what it's called? Geography what it's called. of Resistance? Geography of Resistance is what it's called. So now I've been across the country. I started in these three states, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, when I... Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But... When I left there and started to look at come to Maryland, and the methodology applies in Maryland, not only does it apply for the Underground Railroad, but much of what I'm talking about, about why blacks are situated where they are in the landscape, comes through into the 21st century. So when Michael Brown was killed and they started to talk about the Delmarva Divide in Missouri, and in St. Louis, and they talked about how people were sequestered and divided, it was the same geography of resistance. When I see the railroad tracks, when I see the ravine, when I was on the African burial ground, those bodies were buried in a ravine. And that was the first time I fully understood the impact of geography on the history of African Americans. You just laid it out in a very simplistic formula, but it's a complex uh, situation. It's a complex situation, yes, and you have to understand topography. Yes. You have to look at these maps. But whenever, if I drive down the street and I see I'm in a black enclave, I'm like, well, I wonder why those people are over there. I wonder what happened. I wonder what's wrong with the land. I wonder if the tax situation is different. I want to know because I know if I dig deep enough, there's a reason why you're there. And not only that, if you dig deep enough, you're probably going to uncover some uh, hidden figures that need to be brought to light. Yes. that their story has just been buried, and you can connect the dots. The story has been buried. Connecting the dots seems to be the metaphor because that's the way it occurs. But then you also have people who don't know their own history and can't help you connect the dots. Which, they actually which we don't find know. very frustrating. We Yes, we do. And I have to stay in prayer over that because I tend to think that if I come to you in your little enclave, and if you're an elder in the community, you're going to be able to not only tell me some important things, share some artifacts, and then connect me to uh, a cemetery or a site that's been raised, and you can, but it often does not happen. Maybe yes and maybe no. Right, right. So when we're in these enclaves and people don't know their own history, that's our work, Philip. Right, it is, yes. So we've been given the expertise. We know how to look for it. We know that even when the person doesn't know, they don't know that they actually do know that they have some artifact that they don't understand the meaning of. And when we go into these enclaves with these people and they don't have, we, we can give meaning to things that didn't have meaning in the first place. 
And so our deeper work is to establish meaning not only for the artifacts, but for the history. Because now when someone wants to come in and bulldoze over, oh, that's a shanty, it didn't mean anything. Our work, our deeper work, is to take our expertise and infuse meaning into these things that people don't care about. Now take that, and, and I love I love everything you're saying, especially this last segment. One of the things that we've been doing for over 20 years is when we try to get oral history from uh, elders in our community, people of color, they often say, oh, I don't have anything to share. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to say, but you do. Mm -hmm. What is monotonous to mm -hmm. you, boring and insignificant, mm -hmm. let me take what you want to share and then let us contextualize it and do something with it. So I call them historical nuggets. Inevitably, in these interviews, the participants drop so many nuggets yes. that I, I, I leave doing my happy dance. Yes. And often want to go back, but unfortunately sometimes they transition to the next leg of the yes. journey and I don't get back. Yeah. And then that makes the oral history interview even more significant yeah. because now we no longer can hear their voice. You know, when I was in Rocky Fork in Illinois, one of the people that I was interviewing, Aunt Clem, they used to call her, kept wanting to give me recipes and talk about food and girl and she, so she was always talking about these food and you know what that there's led a connection, to? There's a connection. She started talking about the damsel plums that were on the property. She started talking about the walnuts that were on the come property. On, come on. She started talking about all these different the, the, the fish that were in the stream and I realized that these communities particularly that I was dealing with had their own natural rich resources that sustained the community. They didn't have to go outside. That they could have make pies out of these things and strawberries and whatever they had. But, and that was really important for me to hear. But see, her spirit was not willing to give up until she got you to pay attention. Yes. She was speaking in multiple volumes to you. Well, she now, was speaking about recipes. Right, but, but, but it was a deeper, it was, yes. okay, and the other thing is that look at today the interest in food waste. Yes. So today that is a valued research department that didn't used to be. Yes. Okay, see, so again, this lady was giving you historical nuggets and blessings, and really, you you weren't feeling why I wasn't she feeling was, it. But now, you are. Yeah. And let, let, me, let me segue to something that I find um, really fascinating. It's an old adage, and it basically says that um, what is uh, junk to another person is treasure to someone yes. else. Yes, yes. That not only applies to artifacts, but it applies to oral history. Yes. Because... That again, the people that are giving up this information to us often are giving it to us because they entrust us to do the right thing with it, which is to take it and put it into a link to make other links that make the chain. To make meaning out right, of it. Right, right. Yeah, I'm calling the meaning, chain yeah. the meaning, yes. to make meaning out of it. Yes. So I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about all the, the, the years of the interviews that we have, both in audio and video, and I'm like, how do we go back and, and listen to these uh, and, and really pull out the message yes. that they were giving us? Yes, yes. And when you play the same one over and over again, each time you interpret something that you missed in the previous listen. And it's the same with the historical record. You might read something three times. Right. You blow by half of it because that's not what you're interested in. The fifth Amen. time you go back, Amen. you're interested in something different. The thing looks completely different to you. Right. You now, have to keep revisiting. Now, with all this that you said, one of the reasons that I wanted you to uh, visit with us in Pennsylvania is because in Oxford, yes, the site of the oldest degree-granting HBCU in the country, 
formerly known as Ashman Institute, an 1866 change to Lincoln University, is tied into a former free black community known as Hensonville. Yes. Listening to your you talk, talking with you over the phone, and then you know spending this quality time with you, I want you to be able to physically walk the remnant mm -hmm. footprint of this free black community that was established in 1830. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And listening to all this, mm -hmm. I'm seeing all kinds of new understandings that can come out of having your great brain mm -hmm. <laughs> involved in trying to research, reformat, and recreate a stronger understanding of the significance of this yeah. free black community that has Delaware connections, that has Maryland connections, and obviously Commonwealth of Pennsylvania connections. And you know, when I talk about the book and how it's applicable across multiple venues and yes, states yes, and so yes. forth, one has to, like my friends Battle and Painter did, be able to see the applicability and the individual situation that you're working with. Right. Every situation is different. Yes. But the approach, I mean, as soon as I got there, I'd be like, I, I, you know, firing questions at you. Right, Where's right, the map? Right, Show right, me right, this. Right, right. Let's walk this. Where's Could the this lady please calm down? <laughs> 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 but but I'm, I'm feeling, I'm, we're with you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and every one of these little communities, no matter where they are across the country, whether they're in the north or the south, right. we do not have a very good understanding of what they are. When the majority culture wants to look at them, they want to define them by property lines and are they a municipality and when were they incorporated and what date is on the cornerstone, none of which is applicable to what we're talking about. Right. So we get hamstringed by the interpretive model that people want us to use that is so wholly inappropriate. After I see about four or five names listed in the census together and clustered, I know I'm coming down on the black enclave. Right. I've been trying to use a word that people don't get hung up on in community. They're looking for something official. When I start to see these black enclaves, I already know that there is a story inside of that. And how are we going to speak about it? I also know that when I'm looking at the cornerstone of a church, which is how people want to date it, I've had people practically tell congregations that they're lying because your cornerstone says 1864 and you say you're a pre-Civil War church. Account for yourself. And so what I would say is that when people tell you something, believe them. They may be wrong on some aspect of what they're talking about. They're rarely 100% correct. They got the wrong date. They're on the wrong street. They're in the wrong year. They got the name spelled wrong. You know, the, the ages are wrong. All Everything is wrong. You could probably find mistakes across the entire sweep of the narrative that you're listening to. Yes, but yes. But the event happened. They are correct. And because logic particularly logic that we've been handed says when one part of an argument is false, the entire argument is false. That does not apply. I do the opposite. If you give me an oral narrative and it's 100% true, I know there's something wrong with it. I look for the, the, the true tension inside of oral reporting is that there will be mistakes. Not only mistakes, but some biased comments. Bias, sure. all kinds oh, of sure. problems. Okay, now I, I, I got, you, you just got me on fire. <laughs> Right now, a, a quote from Maya Angelou continues to surface in the social media realm, and it basically says that when someone shows you their color, believe it. Yes, okay. who they are the first who time. They, right, right. So I'm listening to you, and right away I'm just thinking about this quote now that somehow or another continues to appear in, in Twitter, on Twitter, and yep. Facebook, yep. and everywhere else, yep. and 
and it's tied into what you're saying. Yes. Okay. The other thing is, I'm thinking about now how many years ago when I lived in Baltimore and I was active in the heritage preservation community, we were unable to stop demolition yes. of some free black houses, yes. houses that were owned by free black people yes. or that were owned by mariners because yes. the whole Fells Point area is rich in enclaves. And when you look in the, the, the directories in the 1840s or 50s, you get to see the occupation, where the person lived, and their name. And you see on some blocks, you may have you know, four, five, or six in the same occupation. Yes. So yes. all this is just supporting what, what you're talking about, that I lived and breathed for, for many years. Let me break it down for you. <laughs> okay, please, break it down. In the time period in the 1840s, 50s, black people lived in spaces that were undesirable. Yes. So the area of Fells Point where these black people are living, I don't know what it would be, but there's a reason why they're there. And yeah. there's a reason why nobody valued that section of Fells Point. That's why they're there. Either because they're caulking and it's all labor intensive and, and anybody who's genteel is not going to live among this laboring class is a reason why they're there. Now what has happened is these very same spaces that were once undesirable, nobody wanted them, and that's why we're there. The north side of Beacon Hill, which is where black folk are, the, the soil is clay, it's cold, There's no. It's, it's a terrible space to be. But now you know Beacon Hill is the creme de la right. creme yeah. in Boston. Desired. Desired. <laughs> once we go from undesirable to desirable, now we're getting wiped out. Now right. the preservationists are coming in, the city planners are coming in, Everyone's coming in to take these spaces that we once occupied. And even if you can argue for significance, progress and building and all of these things. Gentrification. Gentrification. That I call whitrification. Yes, gentrification. (laughs) All those things take greater importance than this little meager black history that we're trying to say. And segue to off the podcast view, I was sharing with you a significant 1881 through 1935 Ebenezer AME Church Sabbath School Register. In Baltimore, yes. In in South Baltimore. Yes. And you see the name, the street, the address, whether it be an alley or not. Yeah. And today, in 2017, black folk have no idea that we lived in that community and also in houses today that we can't afford from the ones that are still extant. So there's a metaphor between wiping out history and gentrification and wiping out buildings. So when we get rid of the buildings, we get rid of the black presence in the land. But when we also don't expound on the history, don't remember the history, we get rid of the memory. And when we get rid of the memory, we get rid of your presence, we get rid of your experience in the in the world. We get rid of you, your identity. We wipe you out when we get rid of the history. So it's a double whammy. When we take you out of the landscape and we take you out of the history, we remove you from the American experience. So with that said, where do you classify the phrase cultural memory? You know, cultural memory is, thank goodness, because sometimes that's all we have to go on. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we have different kinds of memory. And I think for African-Americans, we haven't done enough work in the memory field. And when you look inside of the memory field, there's not a lot of um, African-American work being done there. At least it wasn't when I looked, the last time I looked at it, because I'm across multiple disciplines. And maybe when I come back to the memory discipline again, there's going to be more. But when I left it, there wasn't much. So another phrase that I think might be germane is cultural capital. Cultural capital. Well, we have lots of cultural capital. And so let's be clear. The lineage around music, let's say, because that's the strongest. The lineage around oral tradition, 
we have a lot of cultural capital there, but our historical capital, and particularly our ge geographic capital, I want to say, is weaker. We have less control over it, particularly the ge geographical portion, because we don't often own the land that we live on. And, and we once owned the land, but due to various factors, we no longer own the land. And so when we want to go back to try to research it or reclaim it, we're unsuccessful. We're unsuccessful. It's been we're chopped often, up. It's been short. All of that. And we're not often in the, the deed book because maybe we didn't own the land legally, you know, that we didn't ever get the deed. We're not in the state archives where we would find ourselves. And so the land is a, is a unique artifact, and it's a unique form of evidence that is a little bit trickier than the cultural capital that you're speaking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why I work with maps is because generally, and I learned this from the African burial ground, cartographers rarely lie about the terrain. They might not mark it, but they will draw it. So if you look on a map and you know that there's a black community that's supposed to be there, it might go unlabeled, but you can still, if you know and you know the coordinates, you can still come down on it. So I'm very wedded to these maps, and I learned this from the African burial ground where we had one or two maps that labeled the Negro's burying ground. But I can give you a century's worth of lecture on the African burial ground because I knew where it was. The ravine is there. The drawing, I can take you from the time of the, and, and it's a plot of land south of the burial ground that never gets developed. So I find that little triangle. I can give you a century's worth of lecture on a site that was often not labeled because the maps, usually the cartographer is very faithful to the land. You, you know, jokingly this morning when you came down uh, for breakfast, I said, be prepared because I'm going to take you to school. <laughs> I would like to retract that statement. Now, I took you to school off the interview with with artifacts, but you were taking us to school, to elementary, high school, undergrad, graduate, PhD, and then in life. This, I mean, you're just putting everything into the proper perspective. You're opening up my eyes, uh, hopefully our um, listening audience ears and their eyes. And more importantly, you are validating. Probably I wanted to do this podcast to get validation for what it is that my life's work is about. Yes. So in so many different ways, you're, you're supporting my lifelong ministry of collecting and interpreting and preserving and, and connecting the dots of all of this material culture. And at a time when I moved away from mass-produced stereotypical items, I instantly delved into public history, community history, family history, business, church history. I wanted to get a sense of the true African-American yes. experiences through ledgers, letters, photographs, canceled receipts, checks, the written word, uh, Bible. I, I did not want the, the, the popular culture yes. memorabilia. So you are just giving 100% validation to the fact that I was ahead of the curve in the early 90s when I started Absolutely. to acquire these kinds of things that we shared off the, the interview. And you know, Philip, one of the things I say in the book is I think that family history is the real history for the 21st century. I think that that's where we're going. I think that that's where the deep and the depth of richness will reside for upcoming analysis. And families need to understand 
that they do have much to contribute and that one of the ways in which black families are connecting the dots now, as I'm working on um, projects right now, is through the DNA. Yes, yes. So that's going to be the next frontier because black people are jumping over the chasm. Yes, it the is void. Chasm. Yeah, it is. A, yeah, yes. With this DNA analysis. Yes. So that's where we're heading, and that's going to be another dot that we will need to connect to all of this historical work that we've been doing, and that's how we will bring this 1820s artifact into the 21st century. It's and you said it so eloquently. Uh, I, um, I just want to thank you. Thank uh, you. I don't want to give you too many accolades and, and swell <laughs> your head, but I've been a longtime fan of yours, and when I first met you uh, in uh, maybe the uh, 2007 or whenever with the um, Commission for Maryland African American History and Culture, and I'm just sorry that I wasn't able to stay better connected. But now that we've reclaimed you, we're not going to let you go. All things oh, in their own time. In their own time. <laughs> I'd just like to thank Cheryl, Cheryl for, for spending a day and a half with us in Pennsylvania. And we look forward to the next adventure where we can physically go out into the area once known as Hensonville to get her take on this free black community established circa 1830. Thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Mm-hmm.